Hey everybody, I'm Amna Navaz. Welcome to the next episode of Uncomfortable. The goal here, as you guys know, is to have honest conversations about the issues that seem to be dividing America. So every week we try to have a special guest to try to break down some of those issues, find out not only what they believe, but why they believe what they do. With me this week... Matthew J. Dowd, ABC's chief political analyst, right? Extra special guest. Extra, extra <laughs> yeah, special guest. guest. Self-defined <laughs> extra special guest, I want to point out. Um, we're going to talk politics. We should have a little moment of disclosure here. We work together. Yes. We've had a ton of fun over the last year. We covered a lot of the campaign together, 2016. Uh, you come on our live stream coverage all the time, which I anchor You've had me on your show, Straight Talk, your yes. excellent, excellent show. It's awesome to be partners in all of this. It's awesome to be partners in all of this. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, 30 years in politics in your career, correct? Yes, yes exactly. Uh, I want to talk about how you even ended up in politics in the first place. We've talked a lot about how you grew up and where you grew up. Your story mm. starts in Detroit. Starts in Detroit, one of 11 children in an Irish Catholic family. In uh, Detroit, my father worked in the auto industry. I, I tell people that sometimes. I say one of 11 kids, Irish Catholic. And if they don't guess Catholic, they guess Mormon. <laughs> Though if I told you our, the names of the kids, you would know right away. Mary, Patrick, Matthew, Mike, Dan, Paul, Katie, Kelly, Beth, John, Steve. That's impressive. S- straight out <laughs> of the Bible. Go find the names. And then they started repeating them. So it was like Matthew, John, which I have two Gospels. I guess Mom thought I needed two. Um <laughs> And then we have Patrick, then we have John Patrick, and then we have Kelly Marie, and then we have Mary, Mary Catherine. They started repeating names because we ran out along the way. So I grew up there. Uh, Where in a, are you in the lineup again? Number three. So I have an older brother and an older sister. And uh, w- they talked politics. My mom and dad talked politics, but were never involved in, in any sort of formal way and anything like that. They got involved in charity groups and all that kind of stuff as, as we were growing up. But there was a single incident that happened with me that actually led me to where I am, which was Watergate. Hmm. And when I was 12 years old, we used to go up to summer vacation up in northern Michigan. We'd drive up in two station wagons and go up and stay on one of the lakes. And when the Watergate hearings happened, I was 13 years old, uh, I think, or no, 12 years old in the summer of 73, I got fascinated by it. And I watched him and watched him and watched him really? all day long. I was just fascinated by it. Everything about them, I can still remember back to you know, Sam Irvin was chair of one of the committees and Howard Baker and John Dean. And that, watching that said, I want to be involved in this in, in some way. And it was the combination of here's a president who's being held accountable. You watch, obviously, the questions of the Constitution and how it's going to, how the checks and balances are going to work, but also two reporters who were dogged in that, and Woodward and Bernstein, who basically, over two years, sometimes successfully, sometimes very unsuccessfully at times, stayed on a story, stayed on a story, stayed on a story, and then it finally, obviously, a president had to resign for office. So that thing, that whole combination of thing. Ever since then, I started getting involved in politics. Which part of it was it that spoke to you, though? The, like, holding uh, people in positions of power accountable or just the power centers of it all or the drama? Like, what was it? I think it was a combination of things. It was a combination of here's our U.S. Constitution being tested. And I was always interested in history um, and read a lot. So it was that. It was the humanness of everybody involved. Here's a guy that at the height of his power but was still incredibly insecure about it. Here's He broke into Watergate in 1972 when he was going to win in a landslide. 
There was no, all of these things that he did along the The crime wasn't as bad as the cover-up. And then the reporters actually getting interested in a story and working on a story and getting it out there to serve the public interest. That's the entire combination, which had adrenaline rushes, obviously, for the people involved, but also people watching it. And so all of that, and I didn't actually know what I was going to do or how I was going to do it, but I knew I wanted to be in politics. Was anyone else in your life, in your circles of like influence, did anyone go into politics? Was it a thing anyone did? No, nobody in my family has ever even, you know, considered it. And my kids, you know, my kids talk about it and all that, but they have no, no real interest. I mean, my family, brothers and sisters will talk about it with me and they have opinions on different things. I mean, the interesting thing about the family is that we probably represent America pretty well in a, in a unit. Uh, my sister one time said, somebody asked her, well, what's the family like? She said, you can go down to a, go down to a New York subway stop mm-hmm. and randomly pick 11 people. That would be our family. There's <laughs> somebody that's unemployed, that's just getting out of something, somebody that's a doctor, somebody that's just got out of drug rehab, whatever the story is, yeah. we got it. Everyone went their own way. Yeah. Why? Um, uh, well, I think when you're one of 11 kids, I mean, part of it is, is we, it was great and it was exciting and we had our own family, but we all decided to sort of pursue other interests and most of us wanted to get out and go somewhere. I mean, I remember when I was picking my school, I took a compass. This is, I guess, how it, like, anal or whatever this you This is wanted. in like the, oh, this, a compass? This is like the I, mid-1800s and you're growing up? This or? is the compass with the pencil and the point on it. Oh, that kind of compass. That okay. kind of compass. I and I drew a compass. circle around Detroit. And I said, and I drew it 600 miles because I thought it was more than a one-day drive. And I said, I wanna, I'm want i going to go to school outside of that that I get a scholarship to. And just I did. Like to get away from just your family? Just to get away. I mean, just because you wanted to actually, there was so much, I mean, it was fun, but there was also a incredible amounts of dysfunction and all of the things associated with it and your ability to sort of create your own life in that in that environment is awful hard. And so I knew, as many of my brothers, sisters knew, that in order to sort of go out and create your life, you have to sort of leave. And we did. What were you like as a kid? I'm just asking because I'm personally curious. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was a very, uh, you know, sort of happy, positive, you know, optimistic. Um, I was sort of, I you know, guess every family, you sort of figure out who's in what and all of that. I was sort of considered the sort of leader slash diplomat in the family. I would organize stuff in order to try to reduce the intensity in the family unit. If somebody was upset, I would figure out a way to distract it so that with something going on. Or I, I remember organizing Summer Olympics among our own family in the neighborhood. I'd organize, and I'd create medals. <laughs> Did you really? Yes, I'd create, like arts and crafts? Yes, make medals? like we'd make medals and then we'd have our own. And then they, we'd do real things like a 100-yard dash, but then we would do like swinging on a swing set and how far can you jump off the swing set? And you'd get like <laughs> first, you'd get gold, silver, bronze. I did all of that. <laughs> Were you competitive? I was very competitive yeah. and, and very competitive with my with with members of our family. And one of the things our parents pushed, they were both graduates of Jesuit school, University of Detroit's a Jesuit school, and they both did very well in school. They really pushed academics and doing that in academics. I mean, they'd love you to get involved in sports with many of us did, but they'd really pushed academics. And it was, you get home and you, I remember I came home with a report card once and I had six A's and one B. And the question I got asked is, how did you get the B? So you go from this fun, big family in Detroit. You know you want to leave. You went mm-hmm. to school in Missouri. Louis, yeah. Missouri, I think it's pronounced. Missouri. Yeah. Different people pronounce it different, but okay. I pronounce it Missouri. Okay. Are we going to get backlash for that? No backlash. That's on you. He's at Matthew J. Dowd, <laughs> in case you want to send in your comments. Um, 
How did you first get into politics? Your first job was with My a... first paid job. So I did a lot of volunteer work in high school. I'd volunteer for campaigns. And okay. then I did some volunteer work in college. But my first real thing was I interned for Congressman Dick Kephart in St. Louis Okay. Um, while I was in college. And I was in his district office. And I actually got to travel with him a good bit. And this was back in 1982 and 1983. And great, it was great experience. He was a really good guy, and his wife Jane were really good people. And the funny thing is, he would talk in the car at the time about whether or not he wanted to run for president. I remember him talking about this, or stay in the house and become speaker, which is the route he wanted yeah. to take. And he ultimately decided that he didn't want to wait to be speaker, and he ran for president five years later. What was that like for you, though? I mean, when you're, you're this is when you're in college. I'm in college. And you're kind of in a seat of influence. You're talking to people who are considering these big things. Did that leave an impression on you? Well, I I, I grew up with a, my parents constantly, and my mom, I remember this, pushed this idea that she would say, and I think it was a great lesson, and I kept carried it with me, and, and most of my brothers and sisters carry it with, with them, which is, you're be- no better than anybody else, and nobody else is better than you. So anybody that's trying to push themselves around thinking they're better than you because they have more money or more influence or more of that, they're not. But you're not better than anybody else if you gain those things. Mm-hmm. And I learned those lessons early on. I remember I was caddying at – I used to caddy at a country club in in Michigan, wealthy country club. Mitt Romney's father used to play golf at it, George Romney, who was governor. And I remember caddying for people, and these are all the pillars of the community, right? Mm. These are all the people that were either ministers or the wealthy businessmen or politicians, and watching them conduct themselves on the golf courses I caddied. Here's these people that would constantly criticize other people, like, why are those welfare people? Like, what are they doing? And they would cheat on the golf course. And it gave me a really interesting lesson in life, like, everybody's flawed mm. and everybody has their things and these people that hold these seats of power don't just assume that, that they're acting in the best interest of somebody. You became, um, you went on to work for a Democratic senator from Texas. Lloyd Benson, right? yes, who who was running for re-election. I went to work for him and his campaign and then he got picked to be the vice presidential nominee by Mike Dukakis in 1988 and then I ran his joint campaign in Texas. There's an interesting law that was passed by Lyndon Baines Johnson when he ran uh, for president the first time and then vice president for Kennedy under Kennedy that he got a law passed that he could run for his reelection to his Senate seat and for president or vice president in case he lost that he could keep his seat oh, man. and Benson took advantage of that and Benson ended up losing losing the vice president but he won his Senate race in Texas so I did the joint campaign. Did you were you aligning yourself? Did you self identify as a Democrat then? Well, both Was my that? parents were Republican, mm-hmm. and so when I got to college, I started exploring other things and became more. And Dick Kephart was a Democrat, right. and and so I became more interested in that in that side of it. And then I did Democratic campaigns for twenty five something years. Until I went to work for George W. Bush. What was it about the party then? What was it about being a Democrat that spoke to you? It was less about the party and much more about I got to meet different candidates. I volunteered on a campaign for a guy named Governor Teasdale in Missouri before I worked for Gephardt, a really decent guy. Um, Missouri was always a great, back then was a great microcosm of the country. It's like as if what was going on in Missouri was a reflective of the country. Not so much anymore, but it was then. And then Gephardt, I really liked him. And so it was a series of individuals, actually, that I really I was attracted to, all Democratic in that. Um, 
I was always, uh, and I have been always, um, a view of tolerance, especially on social things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have my own opinions. I have my own thoughts being Catholic and all of those things. But I also think that we need to be much more, to- we must be tolerant to people. And I'm probably fiscally conservative. And so there were politicians on the Democratic side that fit that for a lengthy period of time. And there were some Republicans that fit that. The problem today, as we'll probably, I'm sure we'll get into, is that place, which is where a majority of the country is, socially tolerant, but fiscally, let's be responsible with our money. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be a spot for, which is a spot for people, which is a majority of the country. Right. Um, I'm asking about the alignment because you then went on to work for uh, for Republicans. Yeah, two um, Repo- I went to I went, worked for two Republicans. I tell <laughs> people two Republicans: George W. Bush and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And people say, "Wow, you picked two doozies." Well, and and you, I mean, you converted, I guess, is the term from one party to the next. Yes. It wasn't from you know a, a middle yes. of the road. But so, why did you do that? So I ran the campaign for a Democratic lieutenant governor in Texas. His name was Bob Bullock, great guy, old style politician. He's passed away now. Um, and he ran his first campaign in 90 and his re-election in 94. And that's when George W. Bush won for governor. And mm-hmm. I got uh, – and then Bullock ended up, the go- lieutenant governor, working with him. And I got attracted to him. Bush then was, I want to figure out a way to work across the aisle to do what's in the best interest of Texas. He had a Democratic speaker he had to work with and a Democratic lieutenant governor. And so Bush did a lot of things on education reform and business reform and all of that. And I thought, wow, this is somebody that actually could do, if he chose to run for president or chose to run for other national office, maybe actually to bring the country together. And I had started, <clears throat> I had gotten out of politics temporarily, or te- I had gotten out of politics and started a couple of businesses. He called and Carl Rove called uh, when I left one of the businesses, this was in 99, and said, would you go to, would you willing to go to work for George Bush for run for president? And I made a decision then I would. Why was that? I thought, as, as here's a person, and I think many people were attracted to him, I thought, here's a guy that brought people together in Texas, bridged the divides, brought people out of the, their places, and was able to do it in the best interest and the common good of the state. And I thought, that's what we need in Washington. And that was my assumption. I liked him personally. Yeah. One. He's a really personable, he's a really good guy. Um, but I thought, wow, we, if we could do this in Washington, we could solve a lot of the problems. So you were his, uh, you were senior strategist for the campaign yeah, I was his, in 2000? I was, yeah, I was, I was, I ran all his polling and media in 2000, and then I was his chief strategist in 2004. Um, I'm curious, just looking back now, how different was it back then to the way campaigns run now? Was it vastly different, or is it kind of the same in terms of the machinations and the process and all that? Um, it's, it's same in elements, but what's, it's speeded, it's, it's increased in acceleration. And so we didn't really? have, yeah, we didn't have social media in 2000. Right. We, you know, you didn't really have the start, start of really handheld devices really until 2004. Yeah. And it, it used to be you had time to make decisions and you could play these things out. That's changed. I mean, the speed at which and, and the intro, introduction of all these different media. Hmm. I mean, we didn't have podcasts. Right. Right. Podcasts didn't exist. Um, in, what in a it, sad time. I know. It's Not a, a podcast a, around. A desert, a desert of ideas. <laughs> um, and that has changed the nature of the, 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 <clears throat> the speed of it. And that's actually, I think, changed the nature of the ability to be thoughtful. Well, so this brings me back to 2004. Because a lot of people will point to that and say, like, a lot of things changed in how we run campaigns 
in that campaign, too. It was described, I went back and was reading some of the coverage at the time, and maybe this happens every election cycle. We talk about how divided the country is and how partisan things are. But the word Armageddon <laughs> was used to describe 2004. It was like an Armageddon campaign. And things got nasty very early. Well, it was, I mean, I think it's been every cycle it increases as the as the country tribalizes more and as yeah. people say if you're not on my team then you're evil and everybody's good over here with this wearing this jersey and everybody's bad over there this wearing that jersey has existed but it's increased and increased and ex- increased i think there were some things that 2004 it was the first time and i was a big part of this it's the first time big data was used in a campaign where you segmented people mm-hmm. in these in these groupings to sort of appeal, make appeals to them. That was the first time the Obama folks actually read it and talked to a bunch of us in 2008 to sort of learn what we did, and they took it to another. They took it further, <clears throat> um, and so all of those things I think have increased this. And I I think it's campaigns fundamentally don't change society. Campaigns are a reflection of where society is heading. Mm. And I think as society has become more tribalized and how they communicate to each other and divided, then campaigns reflect that. But campaigns also set a tone, right, for like the way that language is used, the things that become acceptable behavior and modes of interaction and discussion points and all those things. Like you can introduce language in a campaign that no one was talking about before and suddenly, as we've seen in 2016, these are just phrases that everyone uses now, right, as, as policy proposals, as well, everyday language. Like campaigns carry a lot of weight. Yes, they do. And, I, and the importance of that, sometimes when you're involved in a campaign, and, then I, and I'll, I'll, I'll say I'll cop to this, is, is that you don't often recognize what you're doing and what, what behavior it's normalizing or what you're doing in the country as a whole. And I, I will say that we should have been much more, in what I was involved in, I should have been much more, cognizant of that and and I am more, I'm much more aware of that now in that how you say how do you talk to each other and what you do in that campaign you have an obligation you should have an obligation to sort of say I'm not going to use divisive language I'm not going to do this because the country needs to be brought together yeah and we need it and campaigns have contributed to that whole conversation which has made it much harder f- to get to the common good but in 2004 that, I mean, looking back now, I remember, and I was just a few years out of school and taking it in, I remember thinking, this is ugly. There, your campaign deliberately cast a guy who was a legitimate Vietnam veteran as like a spineless, wimpy, metal-grabbing phony, right? And then there was a very strong stance taken on 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 uh, gay marriage, on supporting a constitutional amendment, so I'm, basically to ban it. So right? There I'm, are very divisive I, issues I, introduced. There's is been, what I'm saying. Yes, there were divisive intru- messages, messages introduced, but I'm going to sort of. There's myths that have arisen from that campaign. The mm. first one is, is w- we would have conversations. This is interesting. We would have conversations around the table when the Democrats were going through the primary of who we thought would be best to run against. Mm. And people would make the argument they wanted to run against. John Edwards was running at the time and Howard Dean was running at the time. And people would, all the people, sort of seven or eight of us that were in the middle of deciding what we were going to do, would make an argument that I constantly argued that I thought John Kerry would be the best to best run to against. Best to run against, meaning and the most easy to beat. Yes, the yeah. most, the yeah, I wouldn't say easy, but they give us a greater shot at winning. And I did that because, one, that you, you, the best kept best campaigns that are run are ones that that are the that if you take a coin on one side of the coin are your strengths and the opposite side of the coin are the opponent's weaknesses. 
it's best to run against, run, run for your attributes that if your opponent is the opposite of those attributes, it's a easy conversation to have with the American public. The campaigns that go awry are say they say one thing about themselves mm-hmm. and then some totally different about the others. And it's hard for the public to figure out what's going on. I thought Kerry provided that because Kerry, he was sort of this effete sort of um, – Constantly talking about nuance and gray areas, which I, as I have learned, life is all about nuances. And Bush was black and white. This is the way it is. This is how we're going to do it. It was a great contrast. And Kerry, the flip-flopper, right? Kerry would right. flip-flop on issues. And Bush was stern, and he'd stick, and he'd stay with this. That's what I thought the contrast would do. Now, all the stuff related to his Vietnam record and all of that, which was done by third parties. That wasn't done by our campaign. But it was linked, it was linked back to the campaign. It was right? linked back to certain people. I'll tell you what. Yeah. I made arguments within the campaign that we should never go there. You did. I, I didn't think it had, would have any effect, and I don't think it did have any effect in the campaign. I know this myth has arisen, the swift-boated thing, and that's what caused it. No, that's not what caused him to lose. But and, you disagreed with it at the time? I disagreed at the time. And the other thing I disagreed with was the whole idea of people putting – initiatives and referendums on the ballot on gay marriage because I thought most voters didn't care about those issues and weren't going to motivate them and they weren't going to motivate. What they cared about was national security. They cared about being strong in the military and all all those attributes George Bush had. That's what they cared about. And when you look at the election results, the funny thing is, is those states that had referendums on the ballot on gay marriage, conservatives didn't vote any in any higher percentages right. than the states that didn't have them on. Yeah. So it really didn't have an effect. Not on the election, but on the way we talked about things, on on sort of the things that became acceptable. I mean, the constitutional amendment was basically like adding discrimination to the Constitution. And it wasn't even necessarily a Republican-Democratic thing because even John Kerry at the time, right, didn't support gay marriage. He, I think he supported no, like I, civil unions and if, state legislatures. If you remember, Barack Obama and decisions. Hillary Clinton yeah. didn't, didn't come along on this issue. They yeah. were, they, Barack Obama had the same, almost the exact same position as George Bush did. Right. No, we forget the evolution yeah. on, you know, our... our the speedy re- evolution. Yes. On, on our stance on LGBTQ rights and same-sex marriage. That happened very quickly. But even at the time, I think most of the country supported gay rights, not necessarily same-sex marriage. It was a different time. However, the choice to come out and endorse that, to say this is something we should be doing, even if you didn't agree with it, you were in those circles of power. Yes, and it's these are obviously when you're in circles of power um, and then when you're in those things, you don't necessarily agree with everything. You can be, you can be disillusioned by certain things. And yeah. there's, there's certain things that I've written and talked about in the aftermath. And it's one of the things in the, in the book that we've, we talked about before we came on that I talk about. Is, is that you say, okay, I like all these parts of it, but I don't like this, right? right? And you ha- it's a relationship that you have with a candidate, right? I remember my older my oldest sister is gay, right? And she, during the course of that campaign, I had a, a r- number of conversations with her, some of which weren't didn't go, they were very uncomfortable because she was like, how can you work for this guy, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, that's not the reason why I support him. I support him for all these other things. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's it's a series of you have to ask yourself is – are the things that he's that you don't agree with bigger than the things that you agree with, or what are you doing? And 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 oftentimes you get in this you get in this conflict where you think, okay, if he can just get reelected, I remember having this own conversation in my head. If I can just get him reelected, he'll do all the things that I want him to do. That'll be great. He'll bring the country together. Obviously, yeah. it didn't turn out that way, and I had a public break with him. Yeah. In that, but that's what happens in a campaign. It's like a relationship. 
you did have a very public break, right? Yes. You, that disillusionment seemed to just continue to grow. Was there like a tipping point or was it just an accumulation of things over time where you said this this campaign no longer, not the campaign, this, this administration no longer speaks to me. I need to find a different way. I think it was a combination of things. You know, in, in all of the moments of truth, in all the ways to truth in, in, in our lives, they're not, you know, Paul on the way to Damascus. You don't get struck by lightning and think, oh, now I know. Right. There are a series of windows, right, that you see, and then you decide to walk through them or not and see what's next, what's next. And I would say it's a series of windows and a combination of things. Get leaving there. I went back to Texas right after the reelect. I mean, I put like GTT on my door, which used to be, it's an old saying that people that moved to Texas in the 1830s put on their doors in Tennessee, which meant if a neighbor came by, where they wonder where they were, it's, it would just say GTT, and it meant gone to Texas. <laughs> and I put that on my door in the campaign office in, 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 in Arlington, Virginia. Hmm. I left the day after. I, I, I took time to myself and said, listen, I'm disappointed in this. I was disappointed in the whole response to the Abu Ghraib scandal, yeah. which I thought was mishandled. You thought he should have I thought he should have fired, fired Donald Rumsfeld. I think he's yeah. Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah. I thought he should have fired Donald Rumsfeld in that, and I advocated that position um, internally. But it's, so I took time out and then started reflecting on it, and, and then it was a disappointment, big disappointment, in that we didn't bring the country together. The country was now more polarized yeah. than less. That the Iraq War, obviously, turned out to be a complete disaster and a fiasco, and I don't think it was done with the intent at the beginning, but it became a, it became a bad series of things along the way. And my oldest son enlisted and was going to be sent, just going to be deployed to Iraq. In right. that. And so all of those things, some personal, some professional, led me to sort of start the process of breaking. Do you regret any of the things that you did or supported on the campaign? Um, I regret, I don't really have, I, I would say, I would, I would use the word, I mean, I know people think this is a nuance, remorse. I probably have some remorse that I wish I would have spoken out sooner on certain things. But it's hard to say. I mean, all of us do the best we can in the moment in, in, in that we're in, and, and we reflect back on it, and you, that we had the only only had the capacity in that moment to do what we actually ended up doing mm -hmm. if i had if i had sort of more thoughtfulness and more in that i have some remorse that i wish i would have spoken out sooner uh in that but you know when i did it i was the first one i was the first sort of insider to break with president bush mm -hmm. and i lost a lot of friends and i lost actually his business in that time so you know I, it probably could have been sooner but it, you know i ended up doing it i guess on the best timeline that worked for me Politically now, you self-identify as independent? Totally. Vehement independent. Vehement. Like, vehement independent. I mean, I have friends, category. as you know, because we, we work together in the conventions. I have friends on both the Democratic side and the Republican side that yeah. work in a lot of different things. Um, and I think that there's many people have good intentions, but I think the system is broken. And I think we need to hold a whole new way in the system. Um, <laughs> Funny you should mention. I, I do want to talk about this because this is it, – it's – You've got some really important stuff in here. This is your new book. Yes. It's called A New Way. Yes. Available on Amazon. Available on Amazon. Doing really well on Amazon, yes. I hear. Thank you. Um, Thank you. But this is, you've got this mission now. You've talked about this. Even back in 2007, you talked mm. about this, that you want to make effort to heal some of the fissures that you feel you may have been a part of. What, what do you mean by that? Well, so uh, I, I think in, in time of reflection and in time of discovery and all of that. And I went on this long spiritual retreat in, yeah. in the aftermath of all of these things. And then having lost a son and a daughter and 
and all of the things happening in my life, I went on this retreat to to five the five major spiritual faiths: um, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, and walked through various places in Turkey and India and Nepal and Israel and and Rome and then Assisi, where I ended up because. St. Francis was a personal hero of mine. And in the course of that, one of the things you learn is, is that all of these things bind. There's certain elemental things that bind us all together. The fundamental, fundamental tenets of these major spiritual thoughts are all similar, which is be part of something bigger than yourself. You know, different things. Somebody calls it Allah. Somebody calls it God. Somebody, whatever they call it, be part of something bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. And love one another, yeah. right? Treat others as you'd like to be yes. treated. And, all, and so in all of that, I, I started to ask myself, what is it that I did it that I wasn't good about in that? And I grew up Catholic, and it's always been, faith has always been an important part of, of for me. And what can I do? And so I started a process in, in my life of figuring, what can I do better? What can I do in the small circles of my life? What can I do better when I'm professionally? How do I treat somebody? What do I say and all of that? And I've tried in in all of that to sort of change the tenor in the which I, you know, I'll make jokes and do all those sorts of things. But uh, there's, just an, there's an acronym that I often use and I remind myself. It's it's called THINK, mm-hmm. right? And I remind myself before I go on air or whatever I happen to do, and I try to do this. Sometimes I fall down. But THINK stands for, is what I'm about to say true, helpful, inspiring, necessary, and kind? And if it's not those, then don't say it. If it's not true, if it's not helpful, it's not inspiring, it's not necessary, it's not kind, then don't say it. And I think part of this, and then there's part of this is each of us treating others better, but also politically, I think we need more choices. And I think people are forced into these choices now today because of our system the way it is. And we need to sort of push through and innovate the system in a way. Um, which was I started this thing, country over party, yeah. putting your country over party. And you can be a Democrat or a Republican or an independent that puts country over party, but putting country ahead of your tribe. Well, country over party is linked to that. You've started uh, Listen to Us, Listen right? Listen to us. And the, you're asking people to join. It's irrelevant of party there, right? But what's, what is the goal? Is it just to kind of create community where everyone has that shared mission? I feel it's a mission. And, mo- and many times with a mission, you don't know exactly the end. You just sort of know that you need to start doing something differently and then watch it move organically. Mm-hmm. So right now it's built in a community of some thousands of people that have joined and been part of it and I talk to or communicate with. And then, you know, I've put, you know, I've gotten stickers that people can put on their vehicles or T-shirts. and There's merch. Yeah. Well, and it's all, <laughs> and it, just so everybody knows, the profits from any of this I do is only going to be used, it's not going to go in my bank account, it's going to be used to support the idea of changing our politics and changing the way we talk to each other. Right. And it's just, I don't know what fundamentally it will lead but I know that I need to try to do something and see where it goes. So how that change, that unifying, because I think everyone can agree, there's a lot of fissures that need to be healed. Does it have to be through politics, do you no, think? No, absolutely not. And I think that that's part of, and that's one of the things, everybody tries to put everybody else in boxes, right? Well, it's got to be this or it's got to be that. I think actually politics are the outcome of our r- relationships, right? And politics is, is writ large what's going on in our relationships. And mm. so I think it's somebody as a social entrepreneur in wherever, Toledo, Ohio, that wants to figure out a way to solve a housing problem. Mm. They're a person that can change what's going on. You know, it's funny is is that, it, you know, Uber and Lyft 
didn't start with, let's start a rideshare association. They basically said, let's solve this problem, right? right? Let's solve this problem where people are frustrated with the industry and we we want a better way, or Airbnb or or whatever, or start a foundation to, to help feed the homeless um, in, in a community. I think all of those are political acts, mm-hmm. and they're actually revolutionary acts because you're going against what the status quo is and every, anybody that does. That's another thing that you learn about all these religious leaders. They were all revolutionaries right. because they stood up and said, uh-uh, this doesn't work. Yeah. And they were fighting a system that was trying to stop them. Often seen as heretics in their own time. Yes. And, yeah. and so I think it's, I think it's politics I w- needs to change, but we all need to change. What um, you mentioned in here, these are sort of lessons for leaders, right? Is this who is the intended audience for this? Is this like things people should Omna, be looking it's for? It's for Omna. It's, it's just for me. It's it basically a personal her. letter. <laughs> it's a plea to Omna. To <laughs> <laughs> um, Matthew J. Dan. No, it is. Uh, it's intended for anybody that wants to lead in some way in their life, yeah. right? And I think all of us, I think we often don't reflect on the power that we have for change. We often think, oh, I gotta get me, I gotta get me a president and they're gonna fix the problem. Right. And so- Because that's how our conversations go now, is that that's the highest office in the land, this is where the decisions are made, and so much is put, back to your original point and your early jobs, so much energy and effort and discussion is put into what happens when we vote for president. Yeah, and I've, I've, ta- I've gone up and down that ladder. So yeah. I've gone I've gone from working for local office and doing the things all the way up to the White House, right? And yeah. then I've come and I've realized the greatest power that can exist the greatest power that exists is locally. The greatest power is what we do in our neighborhoods and our community. It's the greatest effect of change. And normally people in Washington DC or national leaders, they don't lead. They follow. And they follow where we want to take them. And that's I mean the best leaders, if you look at the history of the country, the best leaders figure out where the country wants to go, and mm-hmm. they try to get one half step in front of there where they're going. Those are the best leaders. And then do it constructively. You do it, find the change that will, will go, go about constructively. And so the, 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 the audience for the book is anybody that has a desire to figure out a way to lead. But as I say in the subtitle, it says embracing the paradox is we lead and serve. Yeah. And that's, it's not, we have to be able to have leaders that are humble servant leaders that are, their goal isn't just to like hold an office, their goal is to serve. How do you want to lead? Um, I, Would you, you know, run for office? Well, I, I, people have approached me, uh, on Democrat, Democrats have approached me, Republicans have approached me, and independents have approached me. I've thought about it. I thought about it years ago when I came back to Texas. People, again, had asked me then. It it wasn't the right time. I don't think I don't think that's really. I mean, I've considered it and will consider, but I don't think that's where my voice is best served. And all of us um, have to decide where our voices are best in mm-hmm. that. It doesn't mean running for office, but if anybody listening wants to run for office, God bless you, and I hope you do, um, because I think we need new a new brand of leaders. Or if you want to just help somebody run, or you want, as I say, start a, a social entrepreneurship in your community, whatever it is you want to do. Figure out where what's what's authentic to you. I don't know if that is, and so the likelihood is very small that I would um, that do that. I just think um, I probably have a better voice, and I, you know, on the, my platform that I have working with ABC, I think is part of that. Mm-hmm. Is sort of how do I conduct myself in that? Uh, how do I treat people in that with respect and dignity, and calling people out? I mean, part of our jobs, I mean, as you know is that we, in many ways, we help others hold people accountable. Mm-hmm. And that's our job. We have to hold them accountable because if we don't hold them accountable, there's not many people that will. 
So I'll give you the last word here before I let you go. Um, I always try to do a little sort of forward-facing something. And you're a, you're an optimistic guy. You're a hopeful guy. You're a man of faith. Yes. So what is it that you hope will happen uh, that does try to kind of bring the country back to a point of, of more civility? So I, I think that there's many people that that think, oh, Trump is the end of it, end of everything. He's here and, it, and they, you know, they hate him and all of that. I don't hate Donald Trump. I don't hate Hillary Clinton. I don't. I hope I don't hate anybody. I think that you, Donald Trump is actually could be a catalyst, and I have to give him credit for this. He has upset the apple cart so much he could be a catalyst to where we need to go. And usually that's the case. Mm. Usually the case is that there's a catalyst, and it could be a negative catalyst or a positive catalyst. And I think out of this, I think people are realizing. You you, see, you watch people banding together that progressives and conservatives that are now advocating for what our Constitution stands for. I think the pendulum has swung so far on one side of this, away from the whole idea of humility and humble servant leaders to this sort of reality TV, that it's going to swing back. We may have to give it a push. We may have to push it. And I think that's part of our obligation is to help push that. So I'm actually really optimistic and hopeful in this time. Normally, if you want change, change doesn't occur when everybody's satisfied with the status quo. Change occurs when there's dissatisfaction. There's a lot of dissatisfaction. And so in that, I think we can innovate if we use our imaginations and if we do it with some level of integrity. You know, Gandhi said, and I love this quote of his that I, I, always, I always try to attend to, it says, what we, when what we think and what we do, and what we think and what we say and what we do are in alignment. And that's what we need. And I think we're headed there. We're just going to have to help organize it. Matthew J. Dowd, ending with Gandhi. <laughs> I, was, I would not have called that back when we started this conversation. No, there's so many leaders around the world that I think if people expose themselves to if they just got out of their little group and they understand. I mean, you know, one thing before we close, that one yeah. thing I was struck by, and as I say, St. Francis was always a fan of mine, that St. Francis and Rumi, who you know, the great poet Rumi, mm-hmm. were basically lived on opposite sides of things in the same time were, ba- were, were saying the same thing, right. right? They were almost saying the same, being an instrument of peace that St. Francis said. Well, it struck me earlier when you were saying to the think kind of mantra that you have, yeah. Rumi had his three gates, yeah. right? That yeah. all your words have to pass through three and gates. And if you look at them, they were they lived within a similar span of time, one yeah. from a Christian faith and one other from an Islam faith, mm-hmm. right? A Muslim faith. And they were basically trying to change the, the manner of their church and basically go back to its roots, mm-hmm. which I find fascinating. You and I have talked about this yeah. a lot, about our faiths. And yeah. um, this is a whole other conversation yeah. we can save for a whole other podcast. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> um, Matthew J. Dowd, thank you so much. The new book, A New Way, is out now. And thank you for taking the time. Great I really to be here. It. Always great to be with you, Amna. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. If you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations. And we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we've made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews or tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N, or use the hashtag UncomfortableTalk. Uncomfortable is a production of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. I'm Amna Navaz. Thanks for listening.